0: to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss am are we live yet i can 't even tell I think we're let's lying. load up let's load up the uh, the comments here while we're uh, while we're going live we have four people who are waiting when we scheduled this live which i've never done i've never done this with a real guest on YouTube yet so mm-hmm. david Epstein dr David Epstein is the first guest for a YouTube live i'm pulling up your comments right now z so Let me tell you about this guy, because this, David is an example of somebody that I met online, like not through a dating service, although could have happened, he's very (laughs) handsome. Um, What up, Rachel Duncan? What up, Dizzy Miss Lizzy? All the fam is showing up. So I met David because he had been asked to be a part of a debate, um, a vaccine, -vaccine, pro-vaccine, anti-vax debate And you reached out to me on LinkedIn and you said, Hey, I'm a pediatric intensive care doctor. Uh, I trained at, you know, I was at Georgetown, was at UCLA, I was an academic there for a few years. Then I worked at uh, Children's uh, LA Hospital. I also am an entrepreneur. I started an urgent care in Tarzana, California, seeing um, children. Uh, You know, my wife is a social worker. They asked me to do this debate. And I was curious, since you're really a, a big platform for this, what should I do? Do you have any advice? And do you remember what my advice initially was? Yeah, just to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> my, my initial take was almost mm-hmm. like, well, David, don't, don't debate people. There's not a debate. We're, we're creating a false equivalence. And then you said, "Well, it sounds like it's actually going to be well done, and this and that." And I said, "Okay, well, so this you just got to go do it." Yeah, because
1: yeah, because I, th- I think you, you, were, you mentioned about my perspective and just to be you know authentic and do it. And I was a little bit scared because I you know I've, I've heard all of the things that happen and I watched the uh, the Paul Offit video and hearing people in the background and trying to throw stuff through our walls. To... Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So I, it, yeah, and the thing is, you're this lovely, mild-mannered, compassionate, beautiful introvert, right? And they're going to throw you in this den with Bob Sears, uh, who you had to be uncomfortably close to. So for people who don't know, Bob Sears is a pediatrician in Southern California who is known for his hesitancy around vaccines, particularly the schedule of vaccines. He is on double secret probation uh, by the Medical Board of California for writing inappropriate medical of uh, vaccine exemptions. So he's sort of the dark lord of, of uh, the anti-vaccine physician space. There are not many physicians who espouse anti-vaccine ideas. And he comes off, the, the dangerous thing about him is he comes off as very kind of calm and rational and empathic, whereas you know the stuff he's saying is actually profoundly anti-scientific. So that all being said, you did this thing and then I saw I saw the video and I'm like, oh, everybody in this video, it's interesting, everybody has their own thing. But David Epstein comes out and does something that doctors never effing do, uh, which is he actually tugged at the heartstrings, right? So you told the story about your daughter uh, who suffered with uh, juvenile arthritis and how that, that, that you really were in a position to trust your doctors but also question them and how that, that putting trust in the sort of the medical establishment was not unconditional but it also was so important for your uh, uh, getting her the care that she needed. You were talking about methotrexate, which is such a interesting and complex drug in adults and how it's managed in children. And this person was a rheumatologist, which is not your specialty, you're a pediatric intensivist. So you had to say, someone has expertise that I lack. And that was such a beautiful way to talk about everything from vaccines to how we interact with the healthcare system. And the other thing you did that doctors never do is you, you actually seeded, that we kind of suck at this a lot of times. We have short visits, we don't have the time to connect with our patients. We're we're trying to please so many masters from, you know, the administrators, the bean counters, the insurance companies, and what we really want to do is spend time and go, "Listen, this is why this vaccine is so important and why I did it for my own children." And I was so taken by that, we did a whole show about the, a real doctor watches the episode where of yeah. course we were, you know, who we are, which is assholes. But David then I said look we need to have you on the show just to talk about all the things. And so that's why that's how we got connected. Yeah.
1: That yeah, was it was really cool and 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 you gave me some good advice in the beginning and uh, kind of made me feel a bit more comfortable going into the situation because actually I didn't know what I was walking into, it felt like I was walking into the lions den, and I didn't know, it was like, "What did I sign up for? So. you were <laughs> how was it like on the set of that
0: so what was the name of the of the video again?
1: Uh, it's called middle ground by jubilee uh, entertainment uh, and they were really nice I mean actually, a lot of their content i've I've looked and they've put a lot of thought into it it's it's all people-based, right. so like discussions and people on different issues. And they have a lot of different different forums and uh, it was really nice they uh, they put it together. But
0: I, I thought they did a good job actually. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and
0: I thought the way that they balanced it was actually quite good because what you come away from watching that was uh, there are plenty of reasons for patients to be frightened and nervous about vaccines and our current medical system. And there's plenty of ways we as practitioners can be better about communicating. And mm-hmm. I think using emotion, using our own personal stories, showing people that we're human is so important. And you don't get that from the scientific establish- establishment yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. So congratulations, that was really well done. Well, uh, and so what was cool is it also showed that there's this online cabal, right, of doctors who are trying to influence people through social media for the better. We think we're doing the right thing. and We may mm-hmm. be wrong, right? For all we know, we'll, we'll find out we're totally off base. But I don't think we are. I think we're doing the best we can. And we try to support each other, right? So like yeah. Kevin MD supports other doctors and, and other healthcare practitioners to get a platform and, yeah. and uh, you and I support each other and we get people like Offit and Richard yeah. Pan and these guys. Yeah. So I wanted to today though, I mean, we can talk about vaccines all day, but we've mm-hmm. kind of beat that into the ground. What, what's as an intensivist, right? You're seeing sick patients in the pediatric intensive care unit. Yeah. Have you seen sort of uh, the results of vaccine uh, related preventable illnesses in the intensive care unit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's not it's it's there. I mean, it's obviously it's not frequent, frequent, but when you see it, it really resonates with you. And the thing that we see most of the time uh, would be influenza. I mean, that and that has a big you know, that's a big player during winter time for a lot of kids. Um, when I've done my, my critical care experience, I, I kind of transitioned into cardiac intensive care. And so we're dealing with a lot of uh, cardiac kids mm. at children's and post-op, pre-op, intra-op, you know, you know, all the things that would go on with that. And it's amazing at how infection plays such a huge role in the outcome of those kids and during the winter time um, they you know you get prepared because you may be seeing some of these kids come in they may have had a great surgery but they're at risk for you know complications due to getting infections and things like that and so I'm a big advocate for obviously vaccines because if you can prevent those things I've seen kids have trouble um, and end up back in the ICU because you what know, the illness that could have been prevented as far as some of the vaccine preventable illnesses. I think one of the examples that I, I gave during the video was the meningococcemia, which I think that was the worst case that I've, I've ever seen. And I actually saw it when I was a fellow and, um, it was so dramatic. A, you know, a child came into the ICU and they wheeled the child in and was on a stretcher and I, I still to this day it's like it's like in in my memory uh burned in is that uh the child was sitting up and looked like they were okay but the the child was like doing some movement like repetitive movement looking around and i could see that he was chewing on his lower lip and it was like really chewing on it and i was like well, that's not normal and then how old was uh, this kid um you know it's hard to believe i mean he was single digits it yeah. was kind of you know young yeah. younger and then uh, you know got him into the the room we you uh, know got him you know transitioned to the the bed the icu bed and everything like that and then from there he you know decompensated got intubated and then i still remember all night there were two nurses at the bedside you know pumping in fluids into his body you know co- uh, coagulation factors because he was having DIC and so there was just a lot of uh, very intense care and that was like you know all night all night long next day and then transitioning through the weeks the you know the months you know you saw the the devastating effects of DIC and and the micro micro coagulation or clotting of the extremities and, and his you know the feet and hands turning black and Eventually needing to be amputated. And, and so, you know, I'm like, it's just, it's just dramatic. And it's like, I, I will never forget, you know, seeing that in my life. So
0: I mean, that, and that's a picture that, again, this is a preventable illness with vaccines, right? And so the idea that you're seeing meningococcemia, which, again, and there's so much in what you just said that I think is fascinating, especially for people who are out there in medical school, pre meds, people who are interested in this path of intensive care. DIC. So disseminated intravascular coagulation. coagulation
1: yeah.
0: How is it that that was such a prominent part of this picture? Was it part of the sepsis thing? And how to explain for people who maybe don't understand it uh, what DIC does and, and how it relates to sepsis a little bit.
1: Well, what, what happens is the body responds to, uh, to an organism, an invading organism, and sometimes in different ways. But the thing with sepsis is that uh, there is a dysregulation of the, of the immune system, in which there are the the body's fighting it, and sometimes it can over fight the illness. In which case, you get a lot of uh, a lot of mediators that are circulating through the system, and then you can get um, capillary leak, where the capillaries become more porous, and you get a third spacing of fluid, which means uh, fluid leaks into the tissues. You get a, a consumptive coagulopathy. That's what they say with, with DIC and that the clotting factors are being activated and, and they get used up. And so you get microthrombi, mm. little clots, little clots into yeah. distal extremities, but you're using up your clotting factors. So you're actually having bleeding. So you're bleeding from other, other places. So like central line spots, you kind of start oozing, or you see blood in the ET tube or in different places and, and uh, it's, it's pretty it's pretty dramatic and then you you get hemodynamic instability because your vasculature may be dilated and leaky as we mentioned and so you're on inotropic support where you're on like you know epinephrine or norepinephrine or you know different things to try to kind of uh maintain an adequate blood pressure mm. um so that that blood pressure can adequately perfuse organs so the organs don't shut down so it's a constant balance in in administering fluids and medications and and then providing support to different organs, like the lungs and the heart or the kidneys, if the they brain, shut down, the right. brain. You're trying to preserve, preserve everything you can so the body has time to heal. But it's this, this over-exuberant immune response you know, that uh, becomes dysregulated in some of these situations with sepsis and that causes the problems.
0: And again, tying it, you know, again, this cascade, tying it back into, vaccines and preventable illness is, well, if you can prevent an infection, right? And one thing that you mentioned early on was that you have these very sick uh, patients that are very young, and by the way, this is one thing about pediatrics that I find simultaneously amazing and terrifying, and that is that the number of quality of life years you're saving in a child who's undergoing sepsis, in other words, this is a presumably not an end stage cancer patient. This is not a ninety year old uh, dude who you know is at the end of his life with COPD and a bunch of lifestyle related illnesses where they're smoking and they're obese and they have diabetes and they're making all these you know quote unquote choices throughout their life. This is a child, yeah. and so <clears throat> the intensity of. Pediatric intensive care yeah. seems to me to be ratcheted up that that level higher. Do you find that to be the case in your experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a pressure in any situation when you're dealing with you know life or death, but even more so in kids. I think, from my perspective, because I mean, you're you're dealing with children, and you, I, I think it became more relatable, especially when I started to have my own children, and, and actually when speaking with my mentors when I was training. You know, I heard that from them as well. It becomes a harder, harder process mm-hmm. when you're dealing with kids, and you're like, that child in that bed is the same age as my child. But yeah, and, I find and that I very, find that
0: really hard. That's yeah. why I couldn't do it. If I uh-huh. hear a kid crying in the ER, I get yeah, yeah. So,
1: yeah. so, so that and that's part of it. And then, um, and then also dealing with families. I mean, because the amount of grief, you know, I think that there's grief, you know, when a when a parent dies. There's a grief when a relative dies, but you know, there's always this, uh, this expected progression of life that, you know, your child is not supposed to die before you. Mm. And so the amount of grief that we see in parents and families, and also it affects the staff around it. It's, it's, it's very difficult. Fortunately, in the ICU, it doesn't happen that often. I mean, kids, mm. you know, the mortality rate is pretty low, um, but when it does, it's, it can be pretty devastating. Pretty devastating. How
0: do, guys, how do you guys handle, the loss of children in the icu setting because you know again with with adults i'm pretty facile and it's still kind of hard mm. uh, how, how 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 do you talk to families how do you how do you manage that even personally
1: yeah that, i mean that's a that's a really good question actually my my wife um, is a she's a social worker um bless her heart yeah that's a hard job yeah Yeah. and therapist and and she actually you know does individual therapy and Mm. and counseling and things like that and and you know she she provides a lot of support to physicians and staff and i think one of the things that we had done routinely in the icu is that we would have um you know we'd have debriefings after these events would happen Mm. Because it was really, you know, traumatic for the staff. I mean, some of those nurses may have been taking care of the child for like a long period of time, and they're at the bedside, you know, for full shifts of twelve hours. Mm. Um, you know, people get um, connected to the families. Mm. You know, so when they're there and you're talking with the parents, and you know, so you're you kind of develop this a little bit of a bond, and so it makes it a lot difficult, more difficult, and so you know there's it's a multidisciplinary team i think that helps not only the family get through it but also gets the staff through it and mm. and it's it's hard not to bring it home i mean it's hard you, you think about it and you talk about it with your spouse and you mm. you see you know kind of what's going on cuz you always you always will second guess yourself to see is there something else i could have done more mm. even if there wasn't so my good friend
0: is a pediatrician, and I've I've never seen him so distraught as when they had lost a child who it was fairly unexpected, and they mm-hmm. ran the code, and he was there, and all of that, and mm-hmm. you know he's pretty stoic, and uh, I had never seen him like that. And mm-hmm. you know I've I've lost adult patients in in complicated ways, and I've had to sit with the family, and it's been tough. But mm-hmm. I, what I saw. Him go through was a different order of magnitude because because I think there's a unique bond from an adult to a child you know there there's this really so so I mean kudos to you for doing that i i couldn't do it personally i it, it would just and i've talked about this guy's z like this difference between uh compassion and empathy, so empathy really feeling someone else's pain as your own, real affective empathy like oh i'm suffering with you, and I need mm-hmm. to make that stop, so i'm going to make you know difficult maybe short-sighted decisions with a narrow focus on you and your pain maybe not the best decisions whereas compassion is a slightly more detached but no less caring uh love in the face of suffering and saying i'm going to try my best and i'm going to do what i can to alleviate the suffering because i love and care about you but i cannot take your pain as my own or imagine my child in your place because i will be unable to function uh, and i'll make bad decisions yeah and
1: and i think that that's really important because there has to be, you have to function in those situations when it's happening. You can't, you you're something has to switch. And because mm-hmm. I remember as a, as a resident uh, when we had a code in the, um, in the pediatric ICU and I think the child passed away. It was you know, so long ago that, but I remember being there and going through it as a resident and seeing the intensivists and seeing the staff and everybody. And, and it happened. And then, you know, I, I went to the break room. I was just kind of like, I felt like I was in a shambles. I was like, okay, what's going on? What's mm. going? And then, you know, I'm the resonant. So all of a sudden the nurses come to me because you have other patients to take care of. And it's like, how do you, you know, how do you rebound? And it's like, you can't say, you know, you can't, you have to be compassionate, like you said, but you can't let it uh, incapacitate you so that you can't care for others or yourself at the same
0: you know, time. So this is, this is actually a good teaching point for young people coming up in the game, nurses, medical students, you know, even others in the spectrum like respiratory therapists and stuff, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember, because again, you can be incapacitated at the same time, you can wall it off so much that you don't feel it right away and it comes back in these unconscious ways later. Yeah. So I, you know, for me, it was, um, and then we're gonna read a few comments here because there's quite a few yeah. coming in. <clears throat> For me, it was on oncology at Stanford as a resident and young people with leukemia and with some things that were not treatable and curable and yet we were flogging them with chemotherapy and seeing this person in the bed that was, was you. So yeah. empathy, right? You're, yeah. you're going, this is me, like in no uncertain terms. And having to see 25 of those patients a day and round on them in this very detached way and then seeing them die under torture, like meaning, yeah. They're bleeding out from every orifice. They're infected. They're dying of DIC. They're dying of, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, um, what am I trying to say? The um, syndrome you get where your blood gets so thick because of white cells. Um, ah, what is it called, you guys? Yeah, sludging. Sludging. It's whatever it is. It it it. These horrible ways for young people to die, and just walling it off. Going, I cannot deal with this. And I remember it was only years later that some of those memories came back up in these very untoward situations. And yeah. you realize I never processed that. And the yeah. reason I didn't process that is I wanted to have this detached doctor thing. I had another 20 patients to see. I needed to round, I needed to, I was keeper of the electrolytes. I had to make yeah. sure. That it was in. And um, I'm not sure this is a healthy Way to process. I think we almost mm-hmm. need these like groups or something to come together, like live arounds where yeah. we have a couple of beers, right, and yeah. talk about it.
1: Yeah, and I th- and I think that was the important part is that there, you know, these debriefings. Sometimes they would have like tea for the soul, mm-hmm. you know, on the floor. You know, they'd come in and they just, you know, the this, uh, the spiritual care team would come in and bring you know cookies and tea and stuff. And the staff would have a break and they would kind of just go and. You know, there's there's lots of ways, you know, and support groups and things like that, because, you know, I, I think the one thing in medical school and you know, maybe it's changing since I was in training. But, you know, it seems that you were you were taught to not not be a robot, but you're taught to be kind of like a, you know, a rock, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the uh, wall, the rock. The wall. Yeah. yeah and, and I think now I think it's more about kind of processing those feelings and try to kind of uh, improve your your self-care in a way that it kind of makes you a better physician a better person more well-rounded mm. and i think that's always a struggle you know in the medical community just because of all the demands and all the pressures and things like that.
0: And even in the intensive care setting, this idea of burnout uh, is is pretty rampant because you guys are seeing you know, this people in their most vulnerable, the worst situations, complex family affairs, balancing all these multiple um, sort of obligations that you have, including to your kids and your family and all of that. Yeah. And so it's very important. And I think you mentioned spiritual care, the chaplains and those guys. I've had uh, one of them on my show in Hawaii. It was really fantastic. Yeah. These, these, These folks are, look, you don't have to be religious to actually deeply appreciate the humanism that they're bringing to this idea. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very important. I was skeptical you know, as a typical skeptic when I was um, in full-time practice of the whole chaplain thing. I'm like, oh, they're gonna bring this religious component to this. And that's not how this patient doesn't feel that way. I don't feel that way. But now I'm like, no, 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 no. This is like, it's more about finding meaning. It's more about, there is a component of self-care, there is a component of, um, of processing and then taking the patient's own belief structure into account because yeah. we kind of, as doctors, we're very uncomfortable talking about that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <clears throat> especially in ICU settings, like let's worry about the this, this spiritual meaning of all this later, let me adjust the norepi drip and let mm. me do this and this and this, because that I understand.
1: Yeah, it's I, mean, I think it's a lot easier to be a technician when it comes to those kind of things and it is to be a physician, if that uh, makes sense. You, you know, what explain I mean? so, the distinction. Well, well, I, I think, you know, a physician takes everything into account. The you know, the, the whole person more of like a holistic kind of care and that, you know, yes, they're dealing with the physiology, but they're also dealing with the person and their background and things like that. Um, and that, and that is, that's always a challenge. I mean, I think it's more, it comes up more when you're dealing with end of life issues, because then you're trying to see where the family's at, what their belief systems are, or mm-hmm. how they want to proceed, you know, what, what, what is going through their heads as far as, uh, how they, they want to see this, you know, turn out, uh, even though it's going to turn out, you know often you know, badly, but, um, you know, when things are going well, I mean, I think it's a lot easier to kind of stand back and be, and be less of a physician and more of a technician trying to get, you know, get them be- better, get them out. And I think in the ICU, especially it's, because there are a lot of tubes, there are a lot of mm. you know wires, there are a lot of drips, paraphernalia. paraphernalia. And I think one of the things that was always interesting, and I thought that was always calming, is is you know knowing that the child, you know, knowing their their first name, knowing who they were, mm. and the parents would often put a picture of them on their bedside, so you knew what they looked like before they were uh. there. So you can yeah. kind of see them as as they should be and as you want to get them to
0: you know this is something that we don't do enough is seeing our yeah. patients outside of the hospital as yeah. they were, yeah. so especially in adult medicine because in adult yeah. medicine, you see a shrivelled eighty five year old woman who is no longer in her right mind, yeah. and if you could see that person non delirious in their you know the dress that they love to wear and they're shopping at the dollar store and they've got their grandkids around them. And if you saw that, and if you felt that, that person in the bed is no longer a problem to solve. That person in the bed is a human being. It's your mother or your father. And it doesn't mean that you get sucked into the empathy vortex where you're deep you know, debilitated, but it means that you you now approach this as a human being who happens to know some science instead of a, as a scientist who's trying to deal with this human problem. Yeah, yeah. Wh- Which I think again, gets back to the vaccine thing. So many times we talk about it as scientists trying to deal with this human problem. We gotta yeah. talk about it as human beings. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. let, 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 let's address these guys directly now uh, and let's read some comments. So, um, <clears throat> Where are we at here? Uh, Rachel Duncan says, I cared for a kid who was in a lot of pain once. He'd been in an MBA. I cried and screamed at God all the way home. Thinking about it still bothers me. I'm definitely cut out to be a peds nurse. What do you think of that, David? Do you think the nurses I mean, feel these things more than we do?
1: You know, I, I mean, I think it depends on the person and it depends on the, the personality. But I mean, I, I have a lot of respect, you know, being in the ICU, the ICU is a team, it's a team, Practice. I mean, there is no "I" in in team when it comes to this because there is. You know, we have a group of a nurse bedside. We have a respiratory therapist. We have a dietitian. Uh, we have a social worker. We have a spiritual care person. Um, you know, there's just there. There are a lot of people involved. Uh, you know, respiratory therapy. Um, a lot of people involved in making that that child whole again and. Uh, I think that if you care, I think it's completely normal to to feel those feelings that uh, you know that things aren't going well and to have and to be passionate about it and things. The nurses are uh, such an important part of that. They're there for the whole shift, as I mentioned before, the twelve hours. They're at the bedside, and they. I think that they get more on their end than we do on our end because when we go to the bedside, we're there. We talk to the family real quick. We examine the patient. We go to the next one. Um, we could maybe circle back if there are questions, but the amount of time that we spend is a fraction of what they spend because mm. they're there the whole time. Yep. They're hearing the families, they're hearing the complaints, they're hearing the, the the criticisms, they're hearing the good things, they're seeing the good things, they're seeing the bad things. So, um, you know, it takes a lot to be a pediatric nurse, first and foremost, and it takes a special person uh, to be a pediatric ICU nurse for sure. Mm, uh, a
0: thousand percent. So, so Nancy Swanson <clears throat> says, uh, my eight-year-old, down syndrome son died from leukemia six weeks after his diagnosis. He got rhino uh, cerebral mucormycosis and kept having strokes. Died in my arms. I still have uh, PTSD, but the staff was great.
1: Yeah, and you know, and that's that's the thing where, you know, I tell you know I tell the fellows and the residents when I uh, am and, and attending that we're there just for a fraction of a in time in that person's life and when the parent leaves that room i mean we'll remember the child who who passed away Mm. we may remember her name we'll remember maybe think of them once in a while maybe Mm. Uh, if it doesn't like if it's not burned in our memory but that parent is going to think about them always Mm. and so i always stress that uh you know to try to make it the best experience possible even though it's it's an awful experience and and, i'm sorry to hear about that Mm. um but one of the things, actually, one of my another mentor said uh, we would we would sometimes get children to come to the ICU who are who are brain dead. They're obviously brain dead after an injury and whatnot. And sometimes people would ask, "Well, why are they transferring them to our hospital? They're already dead." Mm-hmm. And and what she said, I'll never forget, is like she would say, "You know what? We do a good death. That's what we do. We know how to do this. They don't." And so part of the process is knowing how to process that and help the family go through that. And that's what we have a specialty into. Wow. So.
0: That I had never heard that before. Yeah. We do a good death. Yeah. You and know what? That's beautiful. That's lovely. That, we, if it's one thing that we ought to be able to really nail, it's taking care of people in the last yeah. stretch and, and we so many of us don't do it well. Yeah. but but it, it but this is something that we can really really do well we can do better and i think we ought to be working more and more on that well that's wow, that's a crazy i never yeah. thought of it that way because you could imagine like
1: <clears throat> the fellows and the residents are like
0: Mwah. yeah
1: they don't you know nobody wants to do that that's yeah. not that's not the job anybody it's wants not what I, I signed up for yeah right? and, it, and it's hard and it really affects people but it's just the perspective in which you take it Right, if you
0: took it as a perspective of what a gift that I get to be here at the end of a journey to help this family on their grieving, you know, exactly. they're gonna, and it could be fumbled in a way that will take decades to unwind. Yeah, exactly. And, and <clears throat> that actually brings me to, um, actually, you know what, forget what it brings me to. I'm gonna read some yeah. more comments because these comments are really good. Um, DFP Films One says, uh, Z, I work in critical care transport and we have started morning prayer circles, non-religious, where we discuss calls along with the good and the bad that comes with them to learn and decompress. We forget about our EMS colleagues all the time. Yeah, These guys and gals are like they're the, in the worst, like you're in the home yeah. and you're picking up a, a drowning you know victim or something mm-hmm. like I mean imagine that they don't take that home and suffer PTSD or some form of maladaptive response if they don't get support and so on. Yeah.
1: What's your take on this? Well, I you know I think supporting each other through these things is the most important thing. We we are in a human field and I think one of the, it was actually interesting. Another, sorry, I go back to my mentors. Oh, my I was god. just a lot of a lot of good stuff in the in the past that uh, I remember as a fellow. I was like I was so gung ho because you're like you, know, you want to stay up all night. You don't you know you don't want to go to sleep. You want to stay up all night on your calls. You want to do procedures. You want to put central lines and intubate and everything. Yeah. And and you're like that's what you do. That's what you signed up for. And uh, you know, one time I was talking to my one of my mentors and he was a little bit older and he was. I was like, oh my god, isn't this amazing? I got to do this, this, and this and and he just goes, yeah, it's okay. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's okay. What are you talking He said, you know, it becomes a little bit mundane after a while. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, because, you know, this is like, this is the most adrenaline. This is like, you yeah, know, this, this is, is why I'm way doing way.
0: it. It's like the ER of the show. Yeah, right? exactly. That's yeah. what
1: you do. And then, but then I realized over time is that, yes, it does become mon- a little bit mundane. Not the caring part, you know, the procedures, the balance in the electrolytes, the writing the orders, all this stuff becomes a little bit mundane. But what doesn't become mundane is the interpersonal aspect. And that's what I've learned over time is that being with the families, understanding them, being with your colleagues, understanding them, sharing things, interacting in a way that helps everybody is so important. And that I think that's what that speaks to those, you know, the morning prayers or any kind of group activity where people are together sharing things because nobody can do this alone. Just like you can't take care of a coding patient alone. Mm. You can't process these things alone.
0: Uh, so. I, I'm, uh, this is the heart of what makes us human beings also, yeah. makes us healthcare people. And I think it's being sucked away a little bit by all the demands on us, and all this, and this is this is what frustrates me. Is I see all this other stuff is distraction: electronic medical record, billing, HRGs, you know, DRGs, all the different kind of stuff that that we have to do. Now it's like any profession, right? But see, ours is very unique in this way. Yeah. That what you said is actually what you said is exactly why it's funny because we these kind of like minds also end up somehow coming together because we just tend to, you can tell that somebody is thinking in this sort of general sphere. We can be different specialists, live in different parts of the country, but you end up coming together and you agree that the reason I do this is not so much so I can balance electrolytes or do cool intubations or cool procedures. Some people do it for that reason, but I think they're the minority. The reason is you get to be with people when they're vulnerable, you get to be with your colleagues and share this thing, which is a gift. when I say this thing, I'm talking about everything you discuss, like whether it's a loss, whether it's a success, whether it's a frustration, you share it with them. Yeah. And we see that as residents with liver rounds, right? Like yeah. you go out, have a few drinks, some pharmaceutical rep would pick up the tab and that, yeah. that's how it was done in yeah. those days, right? And they would bias us in some yeah. way. But the truth is the magic of that was you got to come and decompress, you go, yeah. dude, I saw a patient. this thing happened. And I gotta be honest, I haven't told anyone, but it was really hard for me because I felt like I was to blame. You read House of God and you know, I had Sam Shem on the show and and, uh, it was that, it was like, oh my God, this is what we're feeling. Someone's put into words, someone's expressed it. And nurses in particular who are, they tend to be the nurturer types, not always, but they tend to be that much more so that we feel it, we take it on our own. And and, um, many of them were actually became, in it came into this role because maybe they were victims of trauma or abuse, other things like that. I've learned this as I've grown this platform. So mm-hmm. many of our fans are nurses, and I hear from mm-hmm. them, and I'm like, yeah. wow, you guys have been through a lot. And so, how do they process these very strong feelings if you don't have colleagues, if we don't have an open space to do it? We don't even have a physician's lounge anymore, right? You know, it's been taken yeah. away you know, because we can use that space to house overflow behavioral health patients from the emergency department, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really quite a process. We have to bring it back because I think that's, it's on us, no one else is gonna do it. If we just let the yeah. main counters continue to do what they do,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, we're gonna me- be mechani- mechanized into a a process um, uh, improvement uh, assembly line that's so perfectly tuned and
1: no one's getting better. No mm-hmm. one's happy and everyone quits. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and that's an important point because I actually, so one of the things that my, my wife does too, is, is she's physician support at the hospital. And so mm. what she does at, at uh, children's hospitals, she works there um, is that, you know, she helps the physicians through these times and, and she's, they've gotten support from the higher ups, the people who are the administrators to try to do that. And I think that's a trend across the country. Um, I think she heard, she heard somebody speak from Stanford and um, you know, that people are recognizing that mm. these things and, and you know, it's, I think it's probably a no small part to what you're doing too, bringing these kind of issues to light. And uh, because I think I see more of it on social media about, you know, the the mental health aspect of the medical community and, and, and people realizing that if they want to function at their best, we have to take care of the medical professionals.
0: Yeah, we, we have to, you know, the, the corny phrase that the press will use is heal the healers. But it's kind of true. Mm-hmm. And even even that term healer, a lot of us are uncomfortable with it, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times we don't necessarily feel like we're healing people. We feel like we're solving these like click box problems, and we're going through the checklist, and you know this and this and this. But in reality, we are part of a tradition of this shamanic healing, and that doesn't necessarily mean healing someone's disease, but it means being there to witness their suffering, being somebody who. Imparts a sense of wisdom and calm in the storm that the patient is feeling, yeah. uh, and really being there with them when this happens, including during death and the dying process, very important. And yeah. in intensive care, and I imagine in pediatric intensive care, even more so. That's it's it's that storm is around you all the time, and being that trying to be that calm center uh, is is very valuable. It, it has a shamanic. Sort of ritualistic thing. Abe Verghese and others have talked about this. They've written about this. I think it's important to the laying of hands in the physical exam and those kind mm-hmm. of things. And in the ICU, when you're covered in tubes and wires,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. You still have to examine the, gotta the a, patient. Got to touch yeah. the patient.
0: Got to touch the patient. And yeah. the nurses do it. They say, Did you they look at the patient? Yeah. Did you see the back? Yeah. That's, that's your source of sepsis right there. Yeah, exactly. And because and, uh, you know, like, oh, sepsis without a source <laughs> until you roll the patient out. Yeah, exactly. you see it right there. Um, let's read some comments here. Um, Callie says, yeah, being with is much more important than doing this or that procedure. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Rachel Duncan, I can't deal with the image of their little bodies in the giant hospital beds when they're alive. I can't fathom having to deal with that once they're dead. And and again, this is Rachel is really showing a good example of this empathy and this this overwhelmed emotion. But our see, this is our job, I think. Mm-hmm and I know, I know you're good at this because I, I just know it because this is what you do, right? And I've struggled to actually be, try to be as good at this as I can. We're there to be sources of incredible competence. We need to bust our ass to be good at what we do. We need to study, we need to read, we need to care about what we do so that that can just be a part of the fabric of what we are so that then when we're in the room, we impart wisdom, confidence, calm, and caring. So I care about what happens to you. I know enough to do my best to help you. And I'm gonna be that for you. And you use the term like they expect us to be rocks. I don't think we can be rocks, but we can be sources of strength for patients where they look to us. And there was recently a study. And again, anytime someone says, there was recently a study, they're gonna cherry pick some bullshit data that probably means nothing. But I will tell you this, there was recently a, a thing in STAT News, they were talking about the placebo effect. And what they found was that they did a study where they looked at facial expressions of the practitioner uh, and then the patient's response to procedures. If Mm -hmm. the facial expressions and body language of the practitioner showed a belief that this procedure or this medication or this approach was gonna help the patient, they did better. They had better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So there's something again in the ritualistic interaction of two human beings. And, and, yeah. I, and, and I think you can you can help to train that, but it also takes work and, and wisdom and experience and uh, an open mindedness to this being the centerpiece of what we do.
1: yeah and, yeah. and also uh, yeah I mean I think that confidence too that you know what you're doing and, and I think that plays out. It, it's easier to have that in the or it was easier for me to have that in the ICU because that's what I, that's what I did. When I transitioned and I kind of moved over and started doing pediatric urgent care, it was a little bit different because, you know, you're dealing with children now that, that are sick, but they're not critically ill. And so the expectations are different because... This is interesting yeah, to me because yeah. as a
0: hospitalist, I used to dabble in urgent care and yeah. I often found it overwhelming because yeah. I looked at everyone as either you're dying or you're totally fine. Go walk it off. Yeah. D- did you have that difficulty? You know, in my head,
1: yeah. in my head, because I, you know, obviously I would be in, you know, code situations, you know, dealing with kids, you know, and all you know, the worst of the worst. And then you go into pediatric urgent care, and you have a child who has a cold or ear pain or things like that. But it actually was really good for me, and it actually helped me because it, I think it brought me back, made me a little bit more—I don't know if the, this is the right term—but made me a little bit more human in, in, in respect that, okay, I couldn't rely on my my tubes and wires and mm-hmm. the machines and things like that. I had to rely on myself as a person, and to help make them feel confident in what I was doing. So yes, you know, you have an ear infection, we're gonna give you antibiotics, you're gonna make you feel better. Or yes, there's some inflammation in the ear, but it's not worth starting antibiotics now because I don't see any pus or I don't see, you know, it's not that bad. How are they gonna believe me either way? How are they gonna know what I'm doing is right? Before I would turn up the epi and I'd say the blood pressure go up or I'd give them fluid and, you know, make them pee. But now it's like I have something a little bit more gray and I still have to be able to kind of instill that same kind of confidence. And I can't just say, oh, they're going to be, you're going to be fine because that's too much. That, yeah. yeah, that's not that's not really what parents wanna hear. They wanna hear that they're gonna be fine, but they wanna understand why they're gonna be
0: fine. Exactly right. That's so, really it's interesting.
1: A, it's an interesting distinction because it's true in
0: hospital medicine, I was drawn to it because I was good at it because that's what they trained me to do as a resident. Yeah. I loved the team, I loved the interdisciplinary, I loved the social workers and the case managers and the pharmacists yeah. and the nutritionists, everybody. I loved that connection and I loved the controlled environment and I loved that someone was there usually for a reason. Yeah. So it wasn't a gray area, it wasn't a nuance, it was was like, oh, you have a pneumonia yeah. or you're, you have a GI bleed or you're having an MI. Well, okay, I can, mm. I can absolutely confidently talk about that even mm. when there's nuance. So I can yeah. say, here's, here's the gray area. If it were my mom, this is what I would do yeah. based on my experience. And people really appreciate that. Then I go to the clinic. Because mm-hmm. our clinic, our multi-specialty clinic would have us do these half days of clinic. Mm-hmm. And we resented it, you guys, so much as hospitalists. We were like, you know what? We went into hospital medicine because we don't like clinic. Why are you making us do clinic? Until you realize what it's for. First of all, you see patients when they're not deathly ill yeah. and you learn to deal with that. Yeah and you learn to how do you communicate with patients who you're trying to exactly what you said yeah. you don't say hey, everything's going to be fine because that's not that's not it yeah. It's say hey listen this is what's i think is going on and, yeah. and, and so that was a component of it and the second component actually is because uh, you know we're inpatient based people except yeah. for you're doing pre urgent care now but yeah. knowing who your referring colleagues are as human beings yeah so I knew all the primary docs. So yeah. when they called me yeah. and they're like, I'm a little worried about this patient. I'd like to admit him, but I wanted to run it by you. We could have a conversation. I go, yeah. I know you, I trust you. This is the deal. This is what I think. I say, go yeah. ahead and bring him into the ER. Let me look at him. Or you know what? This happens a lot. Trust me. We can do this as an outpatient. Here's what
1: you do. Yeah, You know? I, yeah, that, I think that's that's actually also been a really amazing part of it is because in the ICU, you're kind of like in like, a I don't wanna say like an ivory tower, or you're you're kind of like, and it's secluded, so it's a black box for everybody on the outside, because you're not gonna you're not gonna sit and you know call every primary pediatrician and say, hey, your child's in the ICU and this mm. and that, you know, you you dealing with specialists. It just it didn't Too happen. Much, yeah. It didn't happen that way, and which is unfortunate. But now that I'm in the community and kind of like bringing the, the expertise into the community, it's kind of been interesting because I've been talking, I talk with pediatricians routinely. Um, and it's nice. You, you feel part of a community in that respect and you get to teach them and they get to teach you because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm no general pediatrician, but, uh, you know, I'm learning stuff from them and it's, and it's really great. And, uh, uh, I think, I think it speaks to that human part of us that we all want to be part of a community or be part of something bigger than ourselves.
0: I, I, I'm with exactly. you a thousand percent. Yeah. And uh, one thing I want to say about that is the teaching among colleagues. Yeah. So nurses complain a lot that, you know, they eat their young and they're, they're kind of they bully each other and so on. And I think that does occur. But at the same time, they teach and learn from each other. Physicians can do the same thing. Like I learned so much from my primary care colleagues about primary care that mm-hmm. I, I I became a semi expert, you know, yeah. because these guys are great teachers. And the word doctor comes from docere, the Latin, which means to teach. So it's a it's a deep part of it. We teach our patients, we teach each other and that's a that's a big big thing. When you um when you started your business, right, your urgent care, were you um what was the motivation for that? Like what said, you know, you and your wife, she's a, a social worker, is she an LCSW? Yeah, she's yeah. an LCSW. So she does therapy, like you said, yeah, yeah that's great. And and mm-hmm. well, what was the motivation to do that?
1: Well, you know, it's funny, cause we we've thought about this over the years and, and we've, you know, we, we rehash it, but it was really, there was a pediatric urgent care in the area. Um, but then it closed down for for certain circumstances. And then for a couple of years, because we had taken our kids to them and um, and then we there's a void, there's a void, you know, and it happened with us and that, uh, you know, our youngest son had to go. You know, he had a fever for, you know, a number of days, wasn't feeling well and it was you know, late and we were getting nervous and you know, all the things run through my head as far as being an intensivist. And and you're like, okay, let's take him in. And and so we went to Children's Hospital where I worked and where she worked at the time. And um, we still sat in the, in the waiting room. We still sat in the emergency room. The emergency room wait was like four hours, oh, you yeah. know? And it's mm-hmm. like, there has to be a better way to do that. And so our impetus was to kind of, you know, maybe bring back to the community and say, hey, you know, we can offer this as a service. We can maybe prevent kids from needing to go to the emergency room because, yeah. you know, a child in, in an adult ER is, it's a really tough situation. Yeah, so,
0: it's like a behavioral health patient in any ER. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough situation. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting because now you bring this perspective, this in-hospital perspective to the outpatient world, and you can, you're probably a pretty good triager of...
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We we see some kids, and you're like, okay, uh, you need to go to the ER. Mm-hmm. We're gonna you mm-hmm. call EMS, or mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's a little bit, you know, we. You, in the beginning, it was funny because I I uh, was coming in with an intensive care standpoint, you know, frame of mind, and I was like, okay, I got my I got an ISTAT blood gas machine that mm-hmm. I was gonna have there because I was like, if I need to, I can see if they had acidotic and everything. It's so and awesome. I, and then I realized, I'm like if i need to get a blood gas on it somebody to go to the they, they they shouldn't be here <laughs> i don't want to deal with that
0: so. i would have done the same thing yeah. i'd have been so, like oh i have all the equipment yeah. it,
1: that's 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 really interesting it's an yeah. interesting
0: perspective yeah. and what's it like being a business owner now
1: um you know it's it's also something different i mean obviously they you know they did, Teach us in medical school. I, I know, don't know right? uh, Residency or fellowship, or none of that. None anything of that. Like that. But yeah. then they
0: put you out in the world, and they let the MBAs take advantage of us. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we're just getting screwed. Yeah.
1: yeah. But it's but it's interesting. You learn a perspective. You learn, um, you know, about employees and and in interactions and staff, and then you know the business part of the business on the financial aspect. And you know, the, as much as you want to, as a physician or or a therapist, like my wife. I mean, we're used to providing care and that's what we want to do, but you can't provide care without the money backing it. Right. You, it just, it has to add up so that you can keep the doors open for other people to come in.
0: Yeah, and this is something so that I think our... we can't really underestimate it. You, you should be able to do well financially by doing good for patients and it's required actually. So in other words, you can't do good for patients if you can't make the ends meet. Mm -hmm. So you have to make it a sustainable thing, which means also we need to change our incentives. We need to work on all that from a systems level. Yes, absolutely. But even on a personal level, direct primary care docs, they make it work. They're able to get paid, do well, take care of fewer patients, do a better job, be a better quarterback for care. And there's no reason urgent care can't work the same way with really good doctors that are running it. Now there are a lot of mercenaries, right, that open up Urgent yeah. cares, and you hear about mm-hmm. freestanding ERs and things like that, yeah. and, so, and some of those are fine, but you know, in general, it becomes a yeah, and yeah.
1: it and it and it's hard because. Um, you know, children are different. And, you know, as pediatricians or the pediatric community, we always say, you know, children are not small adults. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. And so I used to say they are. And that's probably why I didn't get honors in pediatric.
1: But, but, you know, I think that's part of why we do what we do. And, and there are a lot of, you know, urgent cares and, and they, you know, they, they do a good job, a lot of, you know, adult urgent cares, but there's certain things like with babies or, or toddlers or you know some things that are age appropriate or not appropriate. Mm. You know that's what we train to do, and so that was also the impetus by starting this is because we felt like there were a lot of urgent cares in the area, but none of them were really specialized in pediatrics. Right, yeah.
0: that's really cool. Yeah, so, so pediatric, ur- what's it called?
1: Uh, MVP Pediatric and Urgent Care.
0: MVP Pediatric <laughs> and Urgent Care, I like that oh, in Tarzana. Yeah. See, that, that, that that's wonderful. I actually believe in, so this is an interesting topic. So I believe in taking the components of healthcare and optimizing each enterprise to, it's a Clayton Christensen thing. He is a guy who came up with the term disruption, Harvard Business School guy. And he wrote a book called The Innovator's Prescription, which is how a business person might look at healthcare from a jobs to be done standpoint. So right now an ER tries to do a ton of different things, economically speaking. It mm-hmm. wants to be a solution shop. Let's solve what your diagnosis is. It wants to be a retail clinic. Let's give you you know, primary care because you're, you don't have access to a primary care doc or the vaccinations or quick urgent care type stuff to so sew up your lack or splint your uh, fracture, whatever it is. Um, it wants to de- deal with both kids and adults. It wants to do psychiatric services. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to optimize processes when the processes look like this. Yeah. So when you say, okay, how about this? How about we really take out the components of the jobs to be done and make one unit really good at that? And in that way, you can optimize the processes. You can see where things go wrong. You can make them better. So pediatric urgent care is a single unit process. Like even if you have a bunch of different things, you know where to send them, but that is a perfect example. A good example would be a retail clinic. So I, I did this rant the other day that I had to delete. It was just yesterday. Uh, it was, yeah, you're gonna love this. <laughs> you're gonna love this. So <clears throat> this is being ZDogg MD, all right, so. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility and also great volatility and stupidity on my part. So I I took my kids, my two kids who you met and they're running around upstairs with Victoria, our assistant, all four of us went to um, the clinic where our pediatrician is, which is a big multi-specialty clinic run by Sutter Health. And um, we had an experience in their flu shot clinic that was less than optimal. And I did a rant about this uh, last night live. 13,000 people saw it within as I was doing it live, all mm-hmm. right? And then I, I finished it and I felt so much better. I'm like, I let them know what I think about how this should be done. And then I made an interesting connection. I said, hmm, the people who helped me in that clinic are potentially now going to be the targets of retribution by the organization because mm-hmm. they can just find out that I was there and suddenly these people are in trouble.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's not the people that failed, it's a systemic problem that failed. Yeah. And so the thought that, that I could accidentally get somebody in trouble or fired when it wasn't their fault, uh, made me click a button on Facebook that says expire, which makes the video go poof. Mm-hmm. So the people who saw it, saw it, but now it's gone. Yeah. And what I had said in that video, and I'm gonna not go through the rant that I thought would have gotten people in trouble, I will go through the process, which is, um, Target does a great job providing Mm -hmm. flu shots. The pharmacists are trained to do it. They do it really well and quickly. They're now the number two provider of flu shots in the country, pharmacists. Mm -hmm. Every time I've gone to Target, and and substitute Walmart, substitute whatever, Mm -hmm. um, I have a great experience, it's seamless. They take my insurance, it's instant, it's Mm -hmm. friendly, they're smiling, I Mm -hmm. go away happy. And it's private. So in other words, they pull me off in a private space, they give it, and and they don't do kids. So -hmm. that's why I took the kids over here. now this Mm -hmm. was a very different experience. It was all public, we were all lined up, it was this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And there was a lot of glitches in the process that made it tough. Now people who are already hesitant about vaccines now have Mm -hmm. to go through this process that make it hard. We really need to optimize that process. Now, Target has figured out how to optimize that process. Maybe it's not the best place to have a multi-specialty clinic doing that, unless they mm-hmm. figure out how to optimize it. And I think that's yeah. where your pediatric urgent care model becomes mm-hmm. important. Pull that out, be really good at it, and yeah. let other people be really good at what they do.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting. There's a book. At, uh, Disney ran your hospital.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, mm-hmm, and
1: mm-hmm. and part of like the philosophy that we have, and you know, my wife and I, we just like we want to provide good customer service. And it's just like anything like you're talking about the it's a system. And so you're trying to in- institute something in the system and it's probably easier to do it if it's something that's that's focused and then you can optimize it so that uh, people have a good experience because you're not really being you're the experience that you had, and, you know, with the flu shot was not, you're not comparing it to other places that give you flu shots. You're comparing it with customer service that was given to you by anywhere, like mm. Disneyland. Right. You know, So, so that's the, the, high, the idea behind that. So like with the systems that you're talking about, putting a systems in place, it could, you're right, it's not the individual. It's always you know a system that needs to be improved. but. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's a lot in what you said that's interesting to me because the Disney thing actually, uh, I actually watched a lecture from the guy who wrote that book. Mm. And it's interesting, it comes off very appropriate. You're saying this experience of even drawing blood mm. is such an important experience for a patient. And it's not that hard for us to optimize it in a way that they have a good experience. That doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't make us feel like we're being treated like hotel workers. Yeah, That's important. Because I think what's happened is I think a lot of, a lot of big organizations have taken those ideas that are good Mm -hmm. ideas and have tried to corporatize them in a way that now they're just saying, okay, nurses, you will read from this script. Mm -hmm. You will uh, will ask every single patient, you know, if there's anything else we can do for you, sir, here at UCLA and, Now the nurses will say, listen, I didn't sign up to work at a hotel. I signed up to care for human beings. That can be messy and and awkward. This is all true. However, if we have the right processes and we're Mm -hmm. optimizing these jobs to be done, the customer service component comes naturally to us. Yeah. And I think that's what you're saying is like, you get, you, you can't provide. So again, like, I don't think Target like sat there and told their pharmacist, you should smile when you give the injection, you should do this, but they just had their processes so streamlined yeah. that, and they don't do that many processes. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's not yeah. like you're trying to be everything to everyone. You're yeah. saying, look at this is what we do. And we do it really, really yeah. well, which is why I think Walmart uh, is, they're doing getting into health clinics. It's like, if if they actually do Optimize processes and make it an experience. They're going to be a big threat to what's going on in a lot of healthcare, and yeah. in, 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 in hopefully in a way that wakes everybody up and says, "We can't keep doing this. We can't keep treating patients like crap, and yeah. we can't keep treating staff like crap." Yeah, you know. So, and this is something we talk about a lot on the show. It, yeah. it really riles people up, in, yeah. on both sides of this, you know, when you hear patients talk about, you know, we did an episode about should you be allowed to uh, videotape your doctor, you know, uh, secretly. And it's like, hmm. I think most of us would say, "Hell no, not secretly." Yeah. Well, sh- will we, should we be able allowed to do it, not secretly? And patients will say, "Well, I can't remember what you're saying. I can't write it down. Your after visit summary is garbage. Let me yeah. video it so I can be better about it." You always be people abusing yeah. it. And it's like it's hard to argue with that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I you know you, you're talking to a family and you're saying all these things. And then you say, oh, do you have any questions? And they're like, no, but you know, like behind there, there's like, okay, I didn't get everything that that person said. And because for us, it's like second nature. That's what we we do all the time. Yeah, and then sometimes we throw in medical speak or we do things and it's like, and we expect it. So yeah, that's a tough
0: one. What kind of EHR are you using in your class?
1: Uh, We use um, MediTouch, which is with Uh with the next gen. Got it, yeah. uh, Are you happy with it? Yeah. I mean, works. it's, yeah, it works. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. Works. You can make eye contact with the patients. Um, you know, it's interesting. So like if my memory was better, you know, like I, yeah, <laughs> I would, <laughs> I know I <laughs> so I tend, I tend to kind of, I kind of tend, to, tend to, to write out like, you know, the HPI, like what, you know, what the story is so I can kind of get that straight. Yeah. And then after that I put it aside and I do my exam and I, you know, I talk to them and everything. And then I go back and I like, put yeah. everything in just to remember so I don't forget anything I hear you so yeah. but there's a lot of clicking which which means that you know I don't have you can put it click everything as normal mm. and then just put the abnormals in so you have yeah. your set exam and so yeah. it kind of makes it a little bit easier but faster that's always yeah you are always hard <laughs> I, mean, I know that's <laughs> one of one of your sort one of points. our pay points yeah, yeah so let's
0: uh, let's see what comments <clears throat> we have here um Uh, Peter X says, I deal with a lot of toddlers developing new brain medicine, doctoral. They are severe autists, but sometimes I take my distance because you can't take it all home. So this again goes back to compassion and empathy. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Alan Parsons fan. Dude, do you remember the Alan Parsons project? Vaguely. Vaguely, right? It's a progressive (laughs) rock group from the 70s. I am the eye in the sky.
1: That's right, yeah, that's
0: right. Looking (laughs) at you. Okay. your mind. Okay, exactly. anyway, that's yeah, exactly, yeah. I, no formal training yeah. people, actually literally no formal <laughs> yeah, yeah. training. So Alan Parsons fan says, um, the amazing clinicians who got into healthcare to help people can do so without experiencing moral hazard. Well, see, this is the thing, that's if we set up a system that doesn't morally injure us because we're good people in a difficult system. That's why I deleted that video yesterday. I'm like, this is gonna hurt the good people in the system and Sutter's not gonna care. They're not going to care. The only way they're going to care is they're going to have this bad PR for us and we're going to punish the the people who run the clinic. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying take a lesson from Target or send your patients to Target because it it is about a process. It's about a process. I said some other terrible things too because my own group was subsumed by Sutter and Mm -hmm. um, effectively destroyed. But that's another subject. I have no problem saying that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kimberly Clark, I'm a nurse in a pediatric facility for medically fragile kids. Uh, Yes, it's sad sometimes and I cry for each one that's passed like they were my own family. I still can't imagine doing anything else. Right, this is your calling. Um, Alan Parsons fan said, you just made my day even though I'm an epic trainer. (laughs) Oh no. <laughs> you know what? I love the epic trainers. I really do because they have the hardest job in the world. They have to deal with us and we're assholes and we're also very difficult to teach. And yet they have to train us and they care about it. They actually want to make it better. They didn't make the software. They don't they're not Judy Faulkner sitting on a pile of money. They're there to like actually you know, uh, actualize and make it as painless as possible. And they care about it. And these are passionate, man. They come to me in tears sometimes w- yeah. when they see my live talks and they're like, dude, I work as an Epic trainer oh, no. and I, that, I, I feel your pain. I want to, what can I do yeah. to make it better? I'm uh, like, you're already trying your best. Thank you. We do yeah. appreciate you. Yeah.
1: What's the, the human part behind the system, which is,
0: Which is exactly right, exactly right, exactly right. So let's see here. Um, Oh, one thing I wanted to ask you before I forget. So do, okay, we talked about seeing sort of the the vaccine preventable illness and the complications, you talked about meningococcemia and the DIC and the amputations you saw with that patient. Do you see legitimate vaccine injury complications in the pediatric ICU? You
1: know, and that's a good question because I haven't, but sorry, sorry. Yeah, there we go. Sorry. I, I haven't, um, I, I haven't, I haven't seen them. But, you know, then again, sometimes if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to find it. Right. And so, you know, I know that there are issues, you know, with vaccines just like anything else. But, you know, the, I think that's the process that we're working on. I mean, I, I see far more complications from antibiotics mm. than, than I do from
0: tell me that about says, those complications oh okay yeah <laughs> because because this is a, okay well okay a couple things so just to put a thing on that what you just said yes so millions of people get vaccinated and you have not seen a real confirmed va-
1: vaccine do you see Guillain-Barre rarely rarely in kids I mean it, yeah. it doesn't I'm, it doesn't happen as often, but you know, whether that is maybe if there was a correlation between the two, I, you know, I don't know, we didn't, but we did a show on
0: this and you know, flu vaccine, it's interesting that people don't realize this, getting the flu has a more intense correlation with Guillain-Barre than the vaccine. Mm -hmm. There's something about, you know, there's that, that response, we just don't understand it well enough yet. So, okay, so now back to the antibiotics, people don't understand how antibiotics can have these untoward effects. Yeah, and and what kind of stuff are you
1: seeing in the unit? I mean, well, I mean, it, it, you know, I see most of it, uh, most of it in the urgent care because mm-hmm. you're you're giving like oral antibiotics, and and they often have a rash, or they'll mm-hmm. have a, uh, you know. A, A reaction where maybe they have diarrhea or something we need a legitimate child (laughs) there you (laughs) go there you go
0: (laughs) so rash or diarrhea rash
1: diarrhea upset stomach or you know or they don't want to take the antibiotic because it takes tastes awful and so they don't get better yeah so you know there's a whole host of things Um, you know some kids can have severe anaphylactic reactions to antibiotics you know if they have you know severe allergies um, they can get uh, C diff, you know, which is a big one we which see are, all the time. Yeah. yeah. So, so those are those are the things that I see more commonly in the ICU. <clears throat> we, you know, obviously we wouldn't have to worry about anaphylaxis, you know, because a lot of times the kids, if they were intubated, mm. that wouldn't be the the main issue. They would right. develop a rash. Okay, we stop it. We give, you know, we change it over. C diff would be the main thing that we worry about. You know, uh, you know, the, the you know infection with C diff would be the main thing that we worry about or developing antibiotic resistance, like yeah. that you have you know, patients and you know, that would uh, not respond to the antibiotics. So, so yeah, it just depends on the venue.
0: There was know? recently an article I read, again, whenever someone says, there was recently an article yeah. I read uh, about, um, they, they were talking about changing our language about antibiotic resistance as doctors from this mm-hmm. apocalyptic language mm-hmm. where it's like, we're all doomed, everything's yeah. gonna be resistant. Like we see pan-resistant vancomycin or what I mean, a pan-resistant um, uh, 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 enterococcus and these these terrible things it, because it closes the door to actually improving it. So in yeah. other words, it's like, well, we're already doomed. So just keep going and throwing crap at it. We yeah. gotta change our language a little bit. So it's like, well, no, it's actually not, we're not doomed. Okay. We have to figure out a way of it. So an- an- antibiotics are really interesting, um, uh, thing because people think they 're relatively benign and and yeah. especially in an outpatient world you 're dealing with urgent care yeah. about how can I not give you antibiotics for this you know otitis or whatever it is yeah
1: you know? and that's and that and sometimes families they come in with that expectation that mm. you know what they had they had a cold last year and you know i would i was put on anti, they were put on antibiotics and it made them better mm. so oh, always, they, yeah, they yeah. see that and mm. then and that's what happens and so you i think that's interesting about the outpatient setting is that you have to deal with people's expectations mm. because if their expectations aren't met or exceeded then they become dissatisfied with what has gone on mm. and in the icu the you, you don't the expectation bar mm. is not as high, yeah, because, because everyone's out of their element. The, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's not their field, and so it's more of a. Um, uh, the, the word I'm looking for is you. You have more control in the ICU. It's it's more of a, of a paternalistic so, approach, yeah, and yeah, whereas yeah. and whereas in the outpatient setting or the urgent care, it's more of a collaborative approach, and and you have to respect. Uh, autonomy a little bit more. I didn't, uh,
0: yeah, I haven't, I haven't really thought of it that way. That's actually really yeah. a really interesting insight because mm. it's also true in hospital medicine. You can be a little <clears throat> bit more, they want a little bit of paternalism. Huh. They're scared, they need guidance. Mm-hmm. This is out of the realm of normal human experience, yeah. uh, hospitalization, whereas it's not to, to go, oh, you know, I, I, yeah, I got better with antibiotics. So I want antibiotics again. Yeah. We're actually, so one of the songs we want to do is um, Shaggy's uh, It Wasn't Me. Do you remember that song? It wasn't me. Shorty came in and then she caught me red-handed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. And um, we were gonna do it about uh, inappropriate antibiotic prescribing on the part of doctors. You know, I gave a Z. You know, Shorty came in mm. and then she coughed and then wheezed and you know, and it's like you don't, you're not supposed, supposed to, to really yeah. give antibiotics, but I gave a Z. You know, like why? Well, because patient expects it, yeah. my patient's satisfaction score is gonna be poor, it's gonna create take more time for me to talk them out of why they don't need a, an antibiotic. It's easier just to write the script, all these sort of reasons yeah. that we often will capitulate. And the idea is no, we shouldn't, because it's we're, we're here to take care of our patients yeah. and, and we can cause harm with antibiotics.
1: Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is too, is that you're in a situation where um, you're not the only doctor caring for the patient. If you're in an urgent care right. and you're, you know, the patient comes in or the, you know, the, the the parent brings their child in and they say, you know, their ear hurts and mm. you see no signs of an ear infection, there may be a little fluid behind there or something causing pressure and, and, and they're having pain, mm. but there's no infection. Mm. It's like, I'm not gonna give you antibiotics. Yeah, yeah but they can go down the street and, get and, it. and they can get it from somebody else, or- Or go to or, Tijuana and get it, yeah. Well, well. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, or, or they go and somebody says, oh, you know, there's an ear infection, you know, I'm gonna give you antibiotics. And whether there was or wasn't, you, don't, you know, you weren't there, but what they're seeing is that yeah. somebody Gave me antibiotics for an ear mm. infection that you missed, mm. and, and there's uh, a little bit of subjectivity uh, to that. Uh, which and makes that sense. Yeah, a thousand percent, man. Yeah, and then, so. and then you know what? We're
0: humans, so we feel like I don't want to be the bad doc that misses this thing, and exactly. I'm going to go ahead and give it. So here's a, a reality check, Nancy Swanson. I got septic from an antibiotic I took, nearly died. Doc <clears throat> had to take my entire colon out. Was on ICU on a vent two weeks before surgery. My six kids were told I had a twenty percent chance of making it. So. Wow. I had a patient uh, in his 40s who got levofloxacin for a pneumonia. Um, it was a mild pneumonia, got levofloxacin. It was appropriate, we think. Uh, this was back in the you know, 2000s and got C. diff, ended up getting a peri-intestinal uh, abscess mm-hmm. that wasn't easily diagnosed because there was so much crap they couldn't see it. ICU, sepsis, ended up dying in the scanner because they, we, we, we realized something's, he's not getting better and something is missing, we can't figure it out. And he was in the scanner that diagnosed the abscess when he coded. And so, and I'll never forget that because the son, again, having that meeting with the family where it's like, dad yeah. was fine, got an antibiotic and now is is yeah. dead. Yeah. And uh, one of the hardest conversations and, and the idea that this iatrogenic, this, you know, we caused this, right? And and again, you know, did he need the antibiotic? Well, he had pneumonia, and then you're trying to go, did we screw this up? What's going on? You, mm-hmm. you beat yourself up. It, it's very hard. So the idea is that everything we do has its consequences, yeah. which means it is a collaborative decision making process. Yeah. But we have to be careful because so many celebrities are running this process now, yeah. people that are developing. Uh, a sense of trust with the public, which shouldn't have that trust. Celebrities shouldn't be trusted about anything mm-hmm. except for mm-hmm. being celebrities. They're really good at that. Yeah. Trust Kim Kardashian about how to be a celebrity, okay? Mm-hmm. She knows how to do that. Yeah. She doesn't know anything about vaccines or antibiotics. or mm-hmm. So th- those kind of things are important. I think and we have to be a bigger voice, which is why I'm glad you're on Twitter, you're on social media, you're out there doing these, that, that video, which I thought was very well done. And um, um you know giving giving our profession a voice, nurses are the most trusted, actually, even above us, yeah. and so when they go out there and do this, we ought to support them too, and this is the other thing, man, mm-hmm. we don 't team up with the rest of the healthcare profession enough we 're kind I of see. like hey, we're doctors, yeah. you know, like uh, we do our thing, then we you know chart and we go home and yeah. but you look at the rest of the team, and you and I are both kind of team player types, right like we, we love that environment. Yeah. If we empowered them uh, and used them at the top of their game, like man, this system would f- absolutely be rebuilt in, yeah. a, in the best possible way. Because we all know kind of how to do it. So we have to we have to partner with these guys. Social media is a good way to do that. Yeah. I'm a believer in that. Although before the show, you and I were talking about how much I hate Facebook and I don't even use it myself, and yet it's my primary distribution platform. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the reason part of the reason we're on YouTube right now is. Facebook can't get their act together, like for some reason all the audio is unsynchronized in every live, live cast that I do on oh, the really? replay. So it's oh, wow. fine live, and then on the replay it's terrible, so I'm gonna post this up on Facebook after the fact, but I wanna try going live to YouTube You know, with, with David Epstein because why not, right? Okay. Um, I had an ear infection 20 years ago that went untreated. Funkier than a funky thing says. I now have permanent damage and hearing loss. I suffer from the most horrendous vertigo. I can no longer
1: drive a car or ride a horse. So what happened there? Yeah. Well, Did they not
0: get antibiotics when they should have, or was there something else?
1: They, I mean, I, it, it depends on the you know circumstances. I don't know what uh, what happened you know, 20 years ago, but right. uh, you know, I, there can be some ear infections that aren't treated by the antibiotic that they're on, although. Um, now there's a bit more antibiotic resistance as we talked about. Mm. So my thoughts are that, you know, was it, was it left untreated? I don't know. Or was it treated and it was a treatment failure because sometimes we do have treatment failures Mm. that require reevaluation reassessment. And so I think that's the, that's the thing that I've learned actually in, in the outpatient medicine part is that you may not know what's going on at that particular time. And there's a little bit of gray area. Like you have a child who has a cold, but then you counsel the parents and you say, look, you know, these are the things that I'm worried about. I'm going to tell you how to look for these things kind of like anticipatory guidance. Like, yeah, you know, your child uh, has a cold now, but this cold, what I have seen is I've seen sometimes it lead to, uh, pneumonia or, ear infections or sinus infections. So what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to give you a couple days, see how things go. If things aren't getting better, then be reevaluated. So I think that's the, I think that's the key that I've learned. I mean, it's just probably like an inpatient medicine too. When you're reevaluating the patients, it's just more on a, a condensed Scale yeah. where your you know your 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 time time course is a lot shorter. You're you're seeing your ICU patient. Okay, how's he doing now? Okay, go back 15 minutes later and see. Okay, what's you know I made a change. What am I going to do now on the ventilator? Okay, with with the outpatient, it's like you have to reassess. So I don't you know I'm I'm sorry that that happened uh, to that person. As mm-hmm. far as the hearing loss and I didn't, you know contextually you know what happened was it something that was left untreated? I don't know, or was it something that was a treatment failure and then was not reassessed? So in so other words, know. there's
0: a lot of ins and outs, a lot of what have you's, yeah. it's not cut and dry. And exactly. uh, and, uh, and relating to that, so <laughs> the social determinants of health, you're in a pediatric ICU, you're seeing opioid withdrawal in infants?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you can see well, what Yeah, and, and do you see that a lot in the population where you're caring?
1: You, not as much anymore. And actually it's interesting because uh, when I was a trainee, um, and actually through, through young attending ships, Um, we would just, you know, start somebody on a drip, uh, we would, you know, like fentanyl drip and, you know, Versed, and we give round the clock Ativan or Mm -hmm. we do, we give all these medications in an effort to try to keep them, the, the children comfortable. But over, I would say over the last 20 years or so, there's been a more of a, of a, uh, a trend towards looking for things like delirium or sedation or opiate withdrawal or things like that, so that um, you do prevent these kind of physiologic dependence on these medications, um, because they can have adverse effects or morbidities associated with them, uh, like you say, withdrawal, which mm-hmm. can extend their time, um, you know, on the ventilator um, if they if they're on the medication, because you're weaning, and and there are issues with that, or prolonged hospital stay, mm. or. Um, you know, there's a whole, there are a no, lot of more biddies. You know, length of stay. Like you know, the longer you're intubated, the higher risk you are of having uh, infection. You know, uh, uh, with you know, ET 2 being in place for a while. You get you know, you don't want you want to get somebody extubated as soon as you can. What's what's the the,
0: what's the deal with ECMO? Uh, How's, that work? How's that work? Because <laughs> yeah, I've I've never I've never had to deal with an adult on ECMO. Actually, it was just not my thing.
1: Yeah. So so there are different types. Of, so what ECMO does is basically it's taking the blood out of the body. It's putting it through a machine that's actually uh, putting it under a, a certain amount of pressure to put it back into the body. To to substitute the heart mm. so that you can maintain perfusion to organs at a certain, at a certain level. And so that's what you're you're doing at that. Extracorporeal membrane, membrane. oxygenation. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're taking that blood out also, and you can oxygenate it through a, uh, an oxygenator, putting oxygen into the blood so you can actually bypass you know, the heart and lungs. And that's essentially what, you know, cardiopulmonary bypass is. Same thing. Um, So basically what you're using ECMO for in the ICU is you're using it for somebody who has severely damaged lungs, Mm. um, who their lungs aren't functioning. And so you want to allow their time to heal um, or you're using it for somebody's heart that's not functioning well. And so you're allowing it time to heal if, the, if they don't heal, then you have to deal with the issue of taking somebody off right. ECMO. That's what I want to do. Or, yeah. or transitioning. And, and that's the interesting part of it because uh, I've heard situations like, and it kind of goes back to vaccines. I've seen kids who've had the flu who got the flu and it damaged their lungs, or they got a secondary infection mm. because of influenza in their lungs and they ended up on ECMO and their lungs didn't recover and they get taken off ECMO. I've seen children who've um, undergone heart surgery, who they suffered maybe an intraoperative event or an event prior to going into surgery um, and their heart function wasn't recoverable. Mm. And so then you have to make a decision on how you're going to transition them. Are you gonna take them off because um, they have multi-system organ dysfunction and you know, even if their heart was normal, they would not be functionally normal? or would you transition them to let's say like a heart transplant, right? You know, so those are decisions that you make and, and basically ECMO is just a bridge to something else. Yeah. It's not a destination. Well, so so. And, that, and
0: that's tough because you're dealing with kids and the parents probably wonder why can't you just keep them on ECMO?
1: Yeah. Because and You're going to
0: withdraw this. Exactly. Right? So that, that, that's a, the tough piece. And then you mentioned flu, which I think is a good way for us to wrap up because you know, we're in flu season now. Yeah. People are still not getting their flu shots. Pregnant women still aren't getting their flu shots. Mm-hmm. Only 35% of pregnant women are getting both um, flu and uh, Tdap uh, vaccinations that are recommended. And mm-hmm. it's not just a preg- uh, you know, pr- to protect the mother so, who are often hospitalized as complications of flu. Uh, you know, in other words, there are a higher percentage of pregnant mothers who end up hospitalized, but you're passing on those antibodies to infant child that can't be vaccinated that young. Uh, so flu, Are you, you've seen probably your fair share of pediatric intensive unit flu. Yeah. Do, are, in your empiric
1: experience, are most of those children vaccinated or are they not vaccinated? I, you know, I, unvaccinated. Yeah. yeah I, and even like the experience that I've had in the clinic on the outpatient setting, it's like, it's very interesting because there are people that come in like, oh, I'm not gonna vaccinate my child for the flu. I don't get the flu shot. And then their child gets the flu, and I see it, and I'm like, the flu. It look, you know, I always hear that that algorithm, like, okay, do you have the flu? Okay, do you, do you feel like you got hit by a truck? Did you actually get hit by a truck? No, then you have the flu. You know, that's like, exactly. you know, because it it really takes you down. And yeah. but the kids that I've seen who've had the flu vaccine, a majority of them actually look much better, just anecdotally, compared mm-hmm. to the kids that did not get the flu vaccine. And so. Um, in, and in the mortality piece, you know, speaks to it in the uh, in the, the CDC. The, the one fact that I remember right now this is like, you know, of, <laughs> like eighty percent of the kids who died from influenza were unvaccinated. 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 So, so I really do think that, you know, if you get the flu shot, that if you do get the flu, because you can get the flu after you get the flu shot, that I feel like, at least from my experience, the symptoms have been much milder. And let's clarify: you don't get the flu from the flu shot, but you can
0: get flu even though you've gotten the flu shot, but it can be milder. And your anecdotal experience, my anecdotal experience has been the same, which is it somehow through through cross-reactivity or whatever, even if the strain isn't perfect, you end up having a milder course of illness, less hospitalization, less likelihood to die. So look, and what's the downside? Some soreness, like I have my arm sore right now, both my kids had it, my arms are sore. I will take a sore arm over a dead child or a hospitalized child or anyone who has to meet David Epstein under circumstances
1: that are other than social
0: um, I, I would take that,
1: yeah. you know? Well, even, even if you're just out of work or you're sick for a day or your child's in bed or have, or you have to take a trip to it an urgent sucks. care, yeah. it's like you have that option of not doing that.
0: Then you end up going to the urgent care and you yeah. end up coming back with strep or something.
1: Yeah. That's <laughs> so, try. you know, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sure yours is much cleaner though. Uh, Dave, we try. Yeah, try. exactly. <laughs> so anyways, like, uh, I wanna really thank you, David, because oh, this was a fantastically fun discussion for me. I, oh, it's a different, different format, and I wanna just have this kind of natural conversation, and you know, a lot of great comments from uh, the z about all this. Ashley Stewart got her flu shot October 21st. Her arm was crazy sore for a day, but no problems after that. And Ashley is already baseline autistic, so I made that up. But, <laughs> so you can't get more autistic from the shot. Uh, by the way, even making that joke, what will, this is what will happen. The anti-vax cult, I'm talking about oh, the sure. hardcore, like professional anti-vaxxers, yeah. not the moms on the fence who are worried that we're yeah. trying to c- connect with. They will take that little yeah. clip and say, MD hates autistic children and thinks they get autism from vaccines. It's like, yeah. you guys need to stop. Yeah. Um, you're the ones giving bleach enemas to children to cure their autism. This is what happens. This that's, is what these people good. are selling. Yeah. yeah, so we're trying to sell science people. We're trying to sell love, a little bit of peace, little bit of happiness, a lot of science, minimal C diff, right? No C diff, my brother. My brother. It's <laughs> a pleasure. Thank so you So we me will put some links to your uh,
1: stuff, your Twitter, your Urgent Care. Uh, shout out to your wife, yeah, uh, Lana Epstein. Thank you for everything you've done. An amazing job with everything. That's lovely. Yeah. Welcome to Jumanji. That's for her. That, that's for her. that's for her. inside you. joke.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Guys, I love you. Thanks for being a part of this. Um, share this with everyone you can. And it's also a podcast. So it's called Incident Report. It's on iTunes and anywhere you can find podcasts. Review the podcast. It helps us a lot. Uh, become a supporter if you want to go deeper. It's like $4.99 a month, whatever. I'm going to stop shilling that stuff. But if you like to hang out with me, I do a lot of live shows for supporters. We have a hell of a good tribe there. All right, guys, I love you. We out. Bye-bye, David. Let me see.